Hare Krishna to everybody. Uh, and also for all those who are not here, I mean physically. I have the pleasure of being in the beautiful Iskon Phoenix Temple. And uh, the devotees are being very gracious and generous. And uh, deities are very, very beautiful. So today we're going to read Srimad Bhagavatam 4, 19, 13. 4.19.13 Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya so the translation, Atrina means by the great sage Atri, Chodita, being encouraged, or Hantu, to kill Prithuputra, the son of King Prithu, Maharataha, great hero, Anvadhavata, followed Sankrudha, being very angry, Tishta, Tishta, just wait, just wait, Iti, thus, Cha, also, Bravit, he said. When the son of King Prithu was informed by Atri of King Indra's trick, he immediately became very angry and followed Indra to kill him, calling, wait, wait, purport. The words Tishta Tishta are used by Akshatriya when he challenges his enemy. When fighting, Akshatriya, when fighting, Akshatriya cannot flee from the battlefield. However, when Akshatriya, out of cowardice, flees from the battlefield, showing his back to his enemy, he is challenged with the words Tishta Tishta. A real Akshatriya does not kill his enemy from behind, nor does a real Akshatriya turn his back on the battlefield. According to Akshatriya principle and spirit, one either, one either attains victory or dies on the battlefield. Although King Indra was very exalted, being the king of heaven, he became degraded due to his stealing the horse intended for sacrifice. Therefore, he fled without observing the Kshatriya principles, and the son of Prithu had to challenge him with the words Tishta Tishta. Prabhupada Ki Jai, Namam Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Pristaya, Bhutale, Srimati, Bhaktivedanta Swamini, Inamine. Namaste Sarasate Deve Godavani Pracharine Nir Vishesha Sunyavari Paschati Desatarine. So I'm going to take a look here at the Sanskrit. The first word is Prabhupada translates Atrina, which means by Atri. Chodito, encouraged. Chodito means um, yeah, impelled, encouraged, uh, urged to do something. Hantum, so uh, Prithuputra, so. The great sage Atri urged uh, King Prithu's son to kill Indra, Hantum. And, uh, and Prithuputra, Prithu's son, was a Maharata, a great Kshatriya. And so Anvadhavata, he literally he ran after him. He ran after him. Dhav means to run, Anu means after following. So Anuadhavata, he ran after him. Sankrudha, being furious. Krudha means angry. Sankrudha means really angry. So Sankrudha and Tishta Tishta, Iti. Iti in Sanskrit is sort of unquote. It, it indicates that whatever comes to the left of the word Iti is a direct quotation. So that means that uh, Prithusan literally said the words Tishta Tishta, unquote. So Tishta is the imperative of the of the sanskrit verb sta to stand but we still have that in english actually sanskrit stanam english stand standing status that's all sanskrit so uh tista literally means stand 
in the sense of stand and fight or stay. Tishta can also mean that you like don't go away, stay. So he told him, stand, stand, like stand like a real warrior. Tishta, Tishta, eat each other. Uh, he said. So uh, Prabhupada in his purport talks about Kshatriya culture or the mood of warriors. And of course, to be fair, it should be said that Kshatriyas were also intelligent. They studied the Vedas and they're very shrewd. And sometimes they avoid a fight and live to fight another day, as they say. To give one example, when Kangsa uh, was about to kill Devaki, because a celestial voice declared that Devati's, uh, what is it, the eighth son, the eighth son of Devaki would kill Kangsa. And so Kangsa, being a shameless Asura, immediately went to kill his own cousin's sister. And so what's interesting here is that her father, Devaka, who was a Kshatriya of the Yadu dynasty, and obviously present at his daughter's wedding, did not challenge Kangsa. And Devaki's new husband, Vasudeva, also a Kshatriya, did not challenge Kangsa. And in fact, there were many Kshatriyas there. I mean, clearly it's a duty of a father to defend his daughter when she's about to be killed. And certainly it's the duty of a husband. It's the first duty of a husband is to protect his wife. And yet all these Kshatriyas, in fact, did not challenge Kangsa. So that's an interesting fact. And what it shows is that Kshatriyas were brave, but they were not suicidal. And uh, so clearly in that situation where Kangsa uh, was about to kill Devaki, uh, Kshatriyas like Devaka, like Vasudeva and others understood that it's not going to help Devaki if we get ourselves killed. And so um, in the passion of battle, of course, it, I mean, it's interesting, we can study here, the Mahabharata, we have an unlimited uh, amount of battle scenes. It, it's a very big part of the book. And we can observe and study Kshatriya behavior, how they actually react, how they respond in different situations. And um, in a sense, one principle of Kshatriya culture is that fighting is among equals. For example, uh, two chariot fighters. Or, or two bowmen, or, and so on. So there, there's some sense in Kshatriya Dharma that it should be a fair fight, that someone who is much stronger doesn't fight someone who's much weaker. Although, uh, if you look at the Battle of Kurukshetra, the Battle of Kurukshetra was right at the border. It, it was a Sandhya event. Sandhya means the uh, junction or juncture, a juncture between two things. Just like we, in the last verse of the Gurvashtaka, we sing dhyayangs tuvangs tasya jashas trisandhyam, that we are meditating on the guru, stuvan, praising the guru, dhyayangs uh, tuvangs, tasya jashas, meditating on and, and praising his glories, trisandhyam, at the three uh, junctures of the day, which are dawn, that's actually when we chant Gayatri. It's not by the clock, and it's not after Mangalarti. 
it's um, when you look at the sky and it's not night and not day, it's in the middle, dawn, that's Sandhya. So it's the juncture of, of night and day. And then noon is the juncture of day, uh, uh, morning and afternoon. So right at that juncture and then in the evening at twilight or dusk, when if you look at the sky and it's no longer day but not night, that's Sandhya. So that's the mean of, of Sandhya or um, so, um, so in terms of kshatriyas, um, they, the Kurukshetra battle took place at a Yuga Sandhya. Yuga Sandhya, in other words, just at the meeting of two Yugas. The Mahabharata and the Bhagavata says repeatedly that the very moment, I think the Bhagavatam also, the very moment that Lord Krishna left this world, uh, the Kali Yuga began. So actually Krishna's appearance was the, um, of course, Krishna appeared at the end of Dwapara Yuga in the very moment that Lord Krishna left this world, that ended Dwapara Yuga and, and Kali Yuga began. But the Yugas, if you, it's just like, for example, toward the end of day, the sun is going down, you can tell the day is ending. And so Yugas are like that. When a Yuga is ending, the uh, characteristics of that yuga begin to decline and the characteristics of another yuga begin to appear. It's like, for example, now, technically, this is uh, November 27th, 2019, in actually Chandler, Arizona, suburb of Phoenix, and uh, for the historical record. So even though technically it is not winter, but it's getting cold. And so, if you think of the yugas as great planetary seasons, then as one yuga or one season is ending, you already, you, can, you understand the point. So therefore in Kurukshetra, at the Kurukshetra Yudha, the battle of Kurukshetra, even though it's technically Dwapara Yuga, it's the very end or, or within you know, a few decades of the end of, after, after hundreds of thousands of years, we're really coming to the very end. And therefore, interestingly, in the Mahabharata, at the very beginning of the battle, uh, the leaders of both armies meet in the center. It's like, it's like a, you know, when there's a, like a you know, boxing match or mixed martial arts, the two fighters come together, you know, the referee tells them the rules. And so it was just like that. So at, at the beginning of the Battle of Kurukshetra, Yudhisthira came forward, and uh, I don't know whether you know the great generals of the Kurus came forward, and they agreed on the rules. They agreed on the rules of the battle, and they respected those rules for about the first five minutes. And then if, if you actually read the Mahabharata, for example, one rule is that you don't attack a chariot driver because a chariot driver is defenseless. That lasted about five or 10 minutes. And, and, and so there were, so once the battle really began, there was, it was so violent that basically the rules were just put aside and everyone just started killing everyone else. And uh, so you can say that people should fight those who are equal like infantry against infantry. And of course, in the definition of an Akshohini, you have all these different categories of fighters chariot fighters and infantry and, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, 
the great fighters, the Maharatas, were just killing, you know, anyone they get their weapons on. And so, so therefore, it's interesting because we can talk about Kshatriya Dharma, but it's uh, it's somewhat imperfectly executed. And as I showed from the example of Kangsa's uh, near killing of Devaki, the Kshatriyas were not fools. And they would, would go into battle, even if, say, if they were outnumbered. For example, at Kurukshetra, the Kodava army was actually larger, not greatly larger, but maybe you know, 30, 40% larger. But uh, let's say an ordinary soldier wouldn't just go up and, and attack Bhishma or, or attack one of the Pandavas. They just they didn't do that. And so they, um, and, and the whole point of, of being on a chariot was it so you could maneuver and hopefully get out of the way of the weapons, not just put your chest up. So, so, so there was this martial spirit and a warrior does have to be courageous and, and has to fight, but they were not suicidal and they were not fools. And uh, so that I just wanted to balance that point. Um, Actually, not so. Uh, any questions on, on these points? Yes. Yes. After doing that, killing everything, and how peaceful life is not there because after that, Kali Yuga comes right after. Okay. Uh, then, uh, yeah, so let me first let me, let me let me first repeat that question before I forget it because people out there in television land you know they can't hear it. Um, the question was that uh, after Kurukshetra, the world did not become or did not stay peaceful for so long. That's the question, basically. Okay. First of all, we have to understand the the actual uh, circumstances of Krishna's coming to this world. In the uh, beginning of Krishna book, Prabhupada translates uh, one of the verses in the beginning. Actually, in the Krishna book, it's interesting, Prabhupada began as a summary study. And so he, in the 10th canto, he skipped the first, I don't know, dozen verses or so, whatever it is. But then after that, he actually translated every verse. <laughs> so he started like that, but once he got into it, he just translated everything. And so, or al almost everything. So, but Prabhupada begins his Krishna book saying once when the world was overburdened by the unnecessary defense forces of demons or asuras disguised as kings. So this uh, demons disguised as kings, we should not misunderstand this to mean that a real king is a Vaishnava and the kings weren't Vaishnavas, therefore they weren't real, that's not the point. The point which is explained everywhere in the Mahabharata, it's just explained everywhere in the Mahabharata, is that there was actually an extraterrestrial invasion of the earth. And uh, that's why Bhumi went to Brahma for help. Because Bhumi has certain powers to supervise the earth, protect the earth, but... So the Mahabharata story, or the story of Krishna's coming to this world, actually begins uh, in an incident described in the eighth canto of the Bhagavatam. That's actually the beginning of the story. In the eighth canto of the Bhagavatam, the asuras and asuras, the demigods and demons, uh, cooperated to churn the ocean of milk. 
and uh, nectar came out, which could greatly prolong life. And so uh, the demons grabbed the nectar. Then Krishna came as Mohini Murti and persuaded them to give him the nectar, which he gave to the demigods. And then after that, the demons being furious attacked the demigods and Krishna came again as Vishnu uh, to save the demigods. What's one thing that's interesting about this whole Shiro, Didhi, Mantana, this churning of the ocean of milk, is that this is the only pastime I'm aware of where in one pastime Krishna incarnated three times. First he came as Lord Tortoise to, serve, to, to hold the churning rod. Then once the nectar came out, he came back as Mohini. And when a fight broke out over the nectar, he came back as Vishnu. But in any case, when the demons were defeated, they did not stop there. They, um, at least a section of the demons, Bali Maharaj actually led the army of the Asuras in, in that incident. But then he went to his own world where he has his own encounter with Vamana. But there, there's a section of Asuras headed by Viprachitti, the Asura general, who's actually the first Dhanava. Viprachitti is the firstborn of Danu, so she, he's the first Dhanava. And uh, Kalanemi, among many others, they, first, they made a plan. First of all, uh, their guru, um, what's his name? Uh, Professor White, uh, Shukracharya. Yes, which means in English, Professor White. Shukracharya. So Professor White, uh, Shukracharya, um, he, had, he had the power called Sanjeevani to bring back to life any of his clients uh, who died but whose bodies were not destroyed. He could, so he did that. He brought them back to life. So then the plan was as follows, that the Asuras, the, the powerful Asuras, would take over a planet and use it, if you know Star Wars, use it as a type of Death Star, or use it as a base to again take over the universe. If you study the nature of insurgencies, in other words, when people are trying to take over a government and they cannot win in open battle, they can't just march on the capital city, that doesn't work. So what they do is they generally go to, um, places where it would be difficult to find them or difficult to find uh, fight them and they regroup and to give an example of that insurgencies uh, for example in Chechnya the uh, insurgents went into the mountains or in Colombia the FARC they went into the jungle or in uh, South Sudan they went into the desert so a desert a jungle a mountain places where you can't bring a normal army and where you can regroup so sort of in the spirit of a classic insurgency, the Asuras decided to go to a very out of the way planet where they would not be suspected or seen, where they could again take power. The planet they chose was the Earth. And that's what the, the Bhagavatam Mahabharata mean when they say the Asuras disguised as kings. They were disguised because they weren't actually human beings. They were actually Asuras. And so the great general Viprachiti took birth on the earth as uh, Jarasandha. 
And of course, Kalanemi took birth as Kangsa and so on. So um, they also had other clever plans. I mean, they were ultimately foolish because they didn't join the Hare Krishna movement. But uh, materially, they, they tried to line up their duckies, so to speak. So another part of their plan was to, they understood that Dharma is a powerful force in the universe. And so the Mahabharata says things like uh, Dharma, Dharma hingsita hingsiti. When Dharma is injured, it injures. And or uh, Dharma rakshita rakshati. When Dharma is protected, it protects. So Dharma is more than just a rule in a book somewhere. Dharma is actually a, a cosmic force. And um, so the asuras, in order to uh, let's say violate dharma as little as possible because every time you violate dharma you sacrifice some of your accumulated power uh they began to take over the earth by taking birth uh in royal families so without even fighting they actually began to take over the earth and so one uh, amazing example of this i will give one example this is my mahavart studies something that took place uh, four generations before Krishna and the Pandavas, but which is part of the Mahabharata story. In fact, the Mahabharata says that, different, that the Mahabharata is so big that different sages uh, begin their narration at different points in the story, but many sages begin with the story of Vasu, Uparichara Vasu, upwardly mobile Vasu, Uparichara. And so, so that's where I'm beginning also. So Vasu, <laughs> Uh, was a member of the Kuru dynasty by birth, but he uh, was not an important prince in the dynasty, and therefore he did not get a kingdom. He had no kingdom. And I don't know if I have time to explain all this. I'll try to do it quickly. But to understand what was going on on the earth, and this is directly related to the story of Krishna's coming. This is actually where the real story begins. Uh, in terms, from the earth point of view, I'm going to give you, I've explained from the point of view of the Asuras, were defeated, they felt unfairly by the demigods, twice unfairly, Mohini Murti kind of you know, tricked them into giving away the nectar. And then when they had a fight, well, the Asuras began to use their sort of this forbidden sort of dark magic. And when they did that, then Vishnu came and, and, uh, and, and beat them up. So, so, they, so that was from the Asuras point of view from the earth. If you're on the earth looking at all this, King Vasu, or actually it wasn't a king then, he was performing yoga and the head of the Kuru dynasty, the actual head of the Kurus in uh, Hastinapur was, um, oh, what's his name? The father of Shantanu. Can't believe I forgot that now. Anyway, Shantanu's father was also on the bank of the Ganges performing, just meditating. Why? So why are all the princes and kings just doing yoga? And the reason is because the invasion of the earth took place in the aftermath of Parashuram. We have to keep in mind that when uh, the Mahabharata unfolds, Parashuram is still on the earth. And there's a famous meeting between Bhishma and Parashuram. So Parashuram was a recent avatar. He's still there. He's still on the earth. He hasn't even left yet. And so when Parashuram killed all the Kshatriyas, uh, there was a crisis, just like when Vena was killed, there was there was no government. There were all these Kshatriya ladies 
who uh, young ladies who had no one to marry. And so in order to reconstitute the royal order, it was decided that the Kshatriyas, the ladies, would approach the most pure Brahmins, would give them sons. And so the because it was the most pure, the purest Brahmins who begot the new Kshatriya order, you had Kshatriyas who were very rabbinical. And uh, because of this, it was like the Mahabharata says very clearly that it was as if the, the Satya Yuga had returned. Because you have these leaders who are pure souls, after the killing of all the warriors, no one wants to step out of line because Parashuram is still on the earth, and so everyone is really on their best behavior. And so the situation you have is that it's like Satya Yuga, and so there is literally nothing for kings to do. No thieves, no crime, there's nothing to do. And so they go to the banks of rivers and meditate. So that's one of the reasons the Asuras chose the earth because it was unsuspecting, vulnerable. Kings are just, you know, meditating. And so, my God, this is a piece of cake. And so, so that's one of the reasons they, they chose the earth. The unintended there were unintended consequences of Parasharam killing all the kings. And so, uh, Vasu, was sort of in this dilemma, as is often the case historically, there are more princes than there are kingdoms to go around. And so he decides nothing, there's nothing happening for me on earth. I'm going to Indraloka. I'm, you know, I'm going to go for bigger and better things. And so he starts to meditate to become an Indra. And Indra sees him, of course, and thinks, nah, I don't need the competition. Because he saw that this prince was actually but, and, and, but there was another thing. There was actually even a more important reason. It's not just Indra's famous, uh, you know, jealousy of other powerful people. There was something actually much more serious and important. And that is that Indra must have been aware at that time that the earth was being invaded because it had already begun. At that point, the, the Asuras had not manifest. They had not attacked. They were just taking positions by taking birth in royal families. They, and to avoid violating Dharma, they even took birth as wild animals so that they could kill sages, kill Brahmins without incurring bad karma because an animal, an animal attacks a human. It's not a sin. And then you could say, why were they killing Brahmins? Because it, it's interesting that um, if you're an atheist, I mean, consider what yagya, sacrifice looks like if you believe that it actually has power, but you're an atheist. Like Karmi Mangsa. Karmi Mangsas were sort of atheists. They believed in demigods, they thought they have no power. So if you are in the Asuras, there's a very interesting connection between the Asura philosophy and Karma Mimangsa. Because they both believe in the power of sacrifice, but neither but they don't neither believe that there's really a supreme god that you have to pay attention to. And so if you believe that ultimate, that the ultimate power is not any kind of God, that the power is actually in the sacrifice itself, then the Asuras are going to give a very different interpretation from the Devas to the process of offering to Vishnu. As we know, as Prabhupada said, the Vedic sacrifice are meant for Vishnu. In fact, the Vedas even say, Yagyovai Vishnu, that 
Vishnu is the sacrifice. Vishnu actually is the sacrifice. So when you offer a sacrifice, you're offering to Vishnu because he is the sacrifice. And so, if, but since sacrifices are ultimately offered to Vishnu, then, and if you think the power is in the sacrifice, then you believe the Brahmins are actually empowering Vishnu. From the Vaishnav point of view, Vishnu is empowering the Brahmins by reciprocating their sacrifice. But from the atheist point of view, or the Karma Mimamsa point of view, the sacrifice is empowering Vishnu. And therefore, if you kill the Brahmins and you stop the sacrifices, Vishnu loses his power. So, you know, so a lot of times we read Krishna book, we kind of laugh at the Asuras, but if you consider it from a materialistic point of view, it has its logic. It's wrong because it makes one key wrong assumption. But still, if you make that one, if you grant that one point, or if you believe that one point, that there is no Supreme God, the rest of it is very logical. And therefore it's in your rational self-interest, if you're an Asura, to kill Brahmins. At least to kill those Brahmins who are offering to Vishnu and therefore empowering him. So anyway, that's what's going on at the time. And um, just to wrap this up. Uh, so Indra comes down and he makes, this is very explicit in the Mahabharata, it said over and over again, Brahma, uh, Indra, Indra himself makes Vasu the emperor of the world. So at that time, the emperor of the world is not in Hastinapur. Is not in Hastinapur. The emperor actually is in uh, Shady. He gives him the kingdom of Shady. Shady is sort of, um, I think, a little bit south or south, uh, I think it's southwest of uh, Jansi, if you know where Jansi is, the lowest part of Uttar Pradesh, a little part of Uttar. So, so down there, sort of at the border of, roughly, if you look at a map, there's a, an Indian city called um, Ken, K-E-N. It's, if you look at the course of the Jamuna River, there's a place where the Jamuna River comes very close to the border of uh, Madhya Pradesh and Uttar Pradesh. And at that point, that's, and then below that was Shady. And Satyavati, of course, lived on the river, but that's won't go into all those details. So, so that was Chedi. And the so Vasu, uh, Indra made Vasu king of Chedi and made him the emperor of the world. Better uh, put this phone on silent. And made him emperor of the world. So the king, the emperor of the world was in Chedi at that point, not Hastinapur. The, the empire, the imperial capital would return to Hastinapur. A uh, generation or two later, because of certain events. So anyway, so um, so Vasu, he also gave him a crystal, air, and he said, "In your next life, crystal airship." Uh, and so, therefore, he's called Uparichara, upwardly mobile. And uh, but anyway, this is this is the interesting point. Vasu had five sons and a daughter. His daughter is Satyavati who gave birth to Vyasadeva. Therefore, Vasu is the grandfather of Vyasadeva. But also, his firstborn and most powerful son is Brihadrata, Brihadrata, whose son was Jarasandha. So therefore, Jarasandha, the biggest demon, I mean, I mean, we think about Kangsa because 
in Krishna's childhood Leela, Kangsa is the big demon. But actually, if you look at the whole geopolitical story of Mahabharata, Kangsa is almost a secondary figure. The real demon is Jarasandha. He's the one that has tens of millions of followers. He's the one who protects Kangsa. He's Kangsa's father-in-law. So, so Kangsa, so Jarasandha is actually the most powerful asura. And the very family of Vasu, the very family which Indra has empowered to protect the earth, Jarasandha takes birth in that family and takes it over. So if you look, so again, if you study the Mahabharata carefully, you see what's really going on. And at that point, in my view, it's at that point when Indra's plan has failed. Indra's plan to protect the earth is to empower this family to, and to give uh, Vasu this crystal airship. I mean, as they say, how cool is that? You know, a crystal airship so he can go around the world and protect it. That's Indra's plan. And that plan ultimately, it works for one generation and actually perhaps two generations it works. Third generation, the whole plan collapses because Jarasandha takes over that dynasty. And at that point, in my view, Bhumi goes to Brahma. Because just in terms of authority, it's just like, just a line of authority that if, if, the, if the goddess of a particular planet has problem, you go to Indra, you don't go to Brahma. So the very fact that she went to Bhumi went to Brahma tells you right away that something's wrong because that's not the chain of command. And so the reason she went to Brahma is because Indra had already tried his plan and, and Jarasandha completely sabotaged it. So um, anyway, that's just to give an idea of, of what's Anyway, I'm, I'm studying the Mahabharata from, from historical perspective, and these just there's all kinds of things going on. Even the fact, for example, of uh, just one last little thing, then I'll end. It's getting late, and my doctor will kill me if I give one. Might give a class too long, but um, and that is everything is interconnected. I mean, there's hundreds of details. I don't have time to give you here, but this is just one little sample. One example is when the Pandavas sought refuge, when they had to live one year incognito, why did they go to the kingdom of Virat? And why did Virat receive? That's a whole other story. There's a lot to explain about there, about that that's not generally known. Why the, what, just, just one little detail among many is that uh, Satyavati had a twin brother. Satyavati had a twin brother whose name was Matsya. And remember, Satyavati is still present at the time the Pandavas are going in exile. And Satyavati was very was close to her twin brother, that's natural. And that twin, Matsya, is the prince who actually founded, created the kingdom of Virat, according to the Bhagavatam. And so therefore, uh, Satyavati had a special connection with that kingdom because her brother founded it. And it's to that kingdom the Pandavas went when they had to go into exile. Anyway, so I'll end here. But uh, there's a lot. There's a lot in there uh, in the Mahabharata. So any questions on these points? That means you mean uh, not only for peace that happened. <clears throat> I 
Krishna knew he was an asura, but Krishna didn't attack him. As long as the asuras were behaving properly, no one attacked them. But when Jarasandha captured all these kings and was going to butcher them in this very demonic way, that's when Nardamuni came to the royal court of the Yadus and said, you have to save these kings. No, actually, I'm sorry. Uh, Nardamuni said that you have to, um, that uh, Yudhisthira wants you to the Rajas to sacrifice. And a messenger of the kings came and said, you have to save the kings. So then that's when Krishna decided, well, first I have to kill Jarasandha. Otherwise, I can't do the Rajas. We can't do the sacrifice. So, but yes, if you look at all the Asuras that took birth, no one was bothering them. I mean, look at Kansa. He was sending demons to Vrindavan to kill Krishna. He killed all these babies. So yeah, there were no innocents. The, the Krishna was not, the demigods, they weren't attacking innocent people. In fact, it's very interesting because you could say the Asuras in their past life, they were just openly Asuras. Now they're disguised as human beings and they have a plan. And yet, despite their bad intention, despite who they really are, their background, as long as they followed the laws, they were treated as law-abiding people. In other words, the law of karma, you can't go and shoot someone and say, well, if it wasn't your karma, I couldn't have killed you, so it must have been your karma. I mean, you, you can't do that. So even Krishna, it's very interesting, even Krishna, who, you know, dharmam hi saksad bhagavat pranitam, it's Krishna himself who creates the law, and yet Krishna, in a sense, does not take the law into his own hands. Krishna creates a system in which everyone is treated according to their behavior now. And that's the same, same thing in Krishna consciousness. Whatever our background may be, if we behave properly, if we, uh, then, then we're protected by Krishna. So, thank you all very much. I'd like to thank all the people who are out there in digital land. Hare Krishna. <laughs>